This message first aired on the radio on June 2nd, 2004. We continue today in our preparations to take up the epistle to the Ephesians as it has historically come to be known. And in so doing, last time we took up, as part of our overview, the events that did occur in Ephesus when the apostle first brought the gospel to that part of the world. And we realized that something was accomplished there as Ephesus became the headquarters for the word of God as it grew and multiplied and penetrated Asia Minor, what is today known generally as Turkey and thereabouts. Now the apostle went from Ephesus and spent a little while in Macedonia, in those uh, parts of Macedonia, north of Achaia, where the Corinthian church was, and we believe that he wrote the Corinthian epistles from there, as well as the epistle to the Galatians. And then the apostle moved along as he left uh, Macedonia, and he went uh, into Asia Minor, and uh, when he, uh, th- and that takes us to Acts, the 20th chapter. So, as we have been studying together the epistles to the Corinthians and the epistle to the Galatian churches, we did t- try to lay out there that it is the period of time in Acts 20, verses 1 through 3, after his experience in Ephesus, but before his experience in Jerusalem in the 21st chapter, uh, that he did travel and write those epistles. Now, the epistle of the Ephesians is one of the prison officials uh, uh, epistles. And so we're going to find the apostle imprisoned, wrongly, of course, imprisoned, in Rome under house arrest. And after the experiences he has in Jerusalem and the subsequent experiences of enmity against himself, not only by the Jews, but by zealous uh, uh, Jewish Christians, once that has reached his mind and the state of things uh, in the churches are in his mind, then the Lord will allow him and cause him to write the epistle to the Ephesians, wherein is revealed the great mystery concerning the church, which is Christ's body. So we consider it prudent to trace the apostles' movements up to that time, especially as he gathers together the elders from Ephesus and exhorts them. But we'll briefly trace his movements to give us a further context of not only the epistle to the Ephesians, but all the prison epistles which he wrote at that time, so that we understand the progress of doctrine as it passes through these epistles. Well, after he leaves Macedonia in Acts, the 20th chapter, we come to Acts 20, verse 3. It reads this way, verse 2, And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much, much exhortation, he came into Greece. So he moved down south. Now many commentators believe that the third verse indicates that he probably visited Corinth as it reads in the King James, and there abode three months. But actually, if you'll look at the King James Version, for example, the word there is in italics, and so it would read, and abode three months, but the verb tense is a past perfect, having abode for three months. So we know that, in fact, contrary to three months in Achaia, or in the Greek parts, we learned that he had been three months in the Macedonian parts. And uh, so we don't know how long he came into Greece, but it looks like he just passed through. And when the Jews laid wait for him, he was about to sail into Syria. He purposed to return through Macedonia. So he came down south into Achaia. He discovered there were troubles from the Jews. And so he, uh, rather than sailing into Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. So here he had a group. These were going before, uh, these going before tarried for us at Troas. So here at Troas he has a rendezvous. And it says, We, this is Luke and the Apostle, sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. So now we have a pretty certain accounting, at least in terms of the time of year. He says that in Philippi they kept, they stayed the days of the unleavened bread. So they were in Philippi for the Passover, the days of the unleavened bread, and then, of course, they'll have the Feast of the first fruits, which is an uncertain period of time. It can be anywhere from a couple of days past the Passover to perhaps 12 days, as it was in this case. Because here we see that they were five day, uh, uh, they were the days of the unleavened bread, and then they came to Troas in five days, and they stayed there seven days. So from the week of Passover until the 
time of the first fruits in this particular occasion, it was twelve days. And upon the first of the day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, here we have Acts 20, verse 7, a much maligned and misunderstood verse of Scripture. Some have taken this verse of Scripture and built their denominational practice out of it. You see, they say, well, the disciples came together to break bread on the first day of the week in commemoration of the Lord's resurrection. But of course, uh, this is, though it is, the first of the Sabbaths. That's really what it says. The firsts of the counting of Sabbaths unto Pentecost, where you count seven Sabbaths. This was the first of the Sabbaths, uh, counting seven Sabbaths to Pentecost. And uh, that's when the disciples came together to break bread. And that doesn't mean to have the Lord's Supper. It doesn't say anything here about the Lord's Supper. We don't even know if any of these disciples knew anything about the Lord's Supper. The apostle having just commended it to the Corinthians in, in its practice, perhaps not in its institution, but certainly to formulate its practice correctly. And so these came together to eat, and when they came together to eat, Paul preached to them and, and, and ready to depart on the next day, and he continued until midnight. Well, his time was short, and so he took his time teaching, and he stayed until midnight. And of course, we could learn that Eutychus fell out of the window, fell asleep in the window, but uh, he didn't die though he would have died, uh, the apostle found him, uh, found that his life was still in him, and uh, then they continued together. But we're taking up the uh, account here in preparation for the, we're not studying in detail the book of Acts, but in we're trying to give ourselves some background the book of Ephesians. So verse 13 of Acts 20, and he went before to ship and sailed unto Assos, and there intending to take in Paul, for so he had appointed minding himself to go afoot. So now he's at the tip, the southern tip of uh, Greece here, and we would find him uh, sailing uh, where we discover the Aegean Sea to be, and, uh, uh, as this, and, the, and the northern portion of the Mediterranean there as they come together. And we sailed since, uh, thence, and came the next day over against Chios, and the next day we arrived at Samos, and tarried at Trogilium, and the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus, because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. So he's, he's got only 50 days, and he, doesn't, he determines he's not going to stay in Asia. So he comes to Miletus, and from Miletus, it tells us in verse 17, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Well, this word elders here, this is the episkopos. These are the same as the presbyteros. Uh, excuse me, here he calls them the presbyteros. Elsewhere they're called the episkopos. Presbyteros, that's the older men. That's where elders are. They're the older men of the church. They're qualified older men. And, he, and their work is to episcopo or to see over. So they are overseers. And they're older men, presbyteros. Now he sends to Ephesus while he's at Miletus, and he says, you guys send the elders to me. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, and this speech, by the way, is very important to us. And so we're going to spend a little while today uh, uh, lis uh, listening to the apostle and reading what the apostle says uh, between now, uh, this 18th verse of Acts chapter 20, and the 35th verse. So we'll read it. We'll take our time. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, you know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Gentiles, repentance toward God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here he is remonstrating with them, and he's given a rather lengthy introduction here to them. I'm sure as they hear the words of the apostle and the way that he's laying this out, they must realize this is a momentous occasion. As they traveled from Ephesus to Miletus, they must have wondered, why has he called us? Why isn't he coming to us? What important matter is it that he wants to take up with us? I'm sure they were prepared psychologically from their walk to Miletus. Uh, they must have known uh, that this was something very important. 
Uh, and now as he begins to open this speech where he recounts to them his conduct and his behavior, they must realize that this is somehow a winding of uh, a winding speech or a last speech that the apostle is going to give them, as indeed it is. In fact, he's going to show them that they're not. Go- he's going to tell them they're not going to see him anymore. They're not going to be with him anymore. And so he lays out here his manner of life. He said, "You see what manner I've been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with humility and my uh, of mind, having been high-minded with you. Many tears. I've been in sorrow. Many temptations." Those are his difficulties, both physical and psychological, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. So you can see also what's uppermost in his mind. It is the lying of the wait. It is the intentional and, and, and constant hounding and attempt of the Asian Jews in this particular context. They're lying in wait and their attempt to destroy him. Of course, he's coming off the experience at Ephesus where we surmise and seem to understand that the Jewish elements in Ephesus began to team up with the Gentile elements in Ephesus and chased him out. And so now he points out especially about the hounding of himself by the Jews, which didn't end in Ephesus, but really got its go in Ephesus. In another chapter, we're going to see that not only are they content to hound him in their home country, but they're going to take their lying in wait and their hatred toward him with them to the feast at Pentecost in Jerusalem. He said, And I kept nothing that was profitable from you. I held back nothing. I gave you everything I had. But I have shown you and taught you publicly. And by the way, the man of God does teach publicly. He's a public teacher. He's out in the open. He's not hiding around. He's not sneaking around. He said, How I taught you publicly and from house to house testifying to Jews and Gentiles repentance towards God. Now what is repentance towards God, by the way? It is a change of mind toward God. You are an enmity by wicked works in your mind toward God. Every sinner is an enemy in mind against God. And so repentance toward God is a change of mind toward God. And then also here he says, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a change of mind, yes, the enmity against God is ceased, and faith toward Christ then commences. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem. It's very interesting the phrase he uses here, because it's going to be prophesied. It has been told to him that he'll be bound. Uh, uh, it's going to be prophesied by Agabus later in his journey, as Agabus takes Paul's girdle and puts it around himself and says, Thus shall the owner of this girdle be bound. Well, he says that he'll, he'll be bound physically in Jerusalem. But prior to the time he gets bound physically in Jerusalem, he says, I am bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will befall me there. But he had premonition. He had an understanding. He knew the hatred that was against him. And he knew that he was to stand before uh, those in Jerusalem as a testimony. And he also knew that he was going to stand before kings in Rome. And the Lord will certify that again to the apostle that he will yet see Rome. Now this premonition and this understanding of the enmity against him that he discloses to the Ephesian elders is certainly not a first notion of this even that the apostle Paul communicates. You may remember we've looked at this before. We'll look at it now in Romans the 15th chapter. But prior to this visit, in Miletus, where he visits the Ephesian elders, the apostle also, we believe, wrote the epistle to the Romans. And in the epistle to Romans, uh, the 15th chapter, the apostle says something very interesting. He says many interesting things, but he says something very interesting to the readers there in Rome. Not only has he said, you know, I long to come to you, and I've wanted to come to you for some time. You remember that in the first chapter of the book of Romans. And that's something we're not supposed to be ignorant about. He wanted to come to Rome, and he finally did get to Rome. But now in the 15th chapter, he also says uh, in verse 22, For which cause I have been much hindered from coming to you, but now having no more place in these parts. Well, what part is that? That's Asia. There's nowhere for him to be in Asia. And having a great desire that is many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey, and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, 
if first I be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. And so, of course, this is a long journey as he visits the Gentile churches to collect their gifts or having others send them uh, their gifts. Now he says, For it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. So very most likely he is still writing this from Macedonia, but you see that they are in collusion with the Corinthian churches to provide support to the poor saints in Jerusalem. It has pleased them, verse 27, uh, Romans 15, It has pleased them verily, and their debtors they are, for if the Gentiles have been made partaker of their spiritual things, that is the Jews, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. He said, I'm headed towards the north parts, and I'll come by you after I leave Jerusalem. It's his intention to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall be in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now verse 30, here is his notion. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. So that's his intention, that's his promise, and that's his disclosure to the Romans, to to the believers in Rome. And his concern at that time... He was concerned about the unbelievers in Judea who persecuted the church, those who had not believed in Christ. Little did he know at that time, and boy will he find out in Acts 21, that these who don't believe in Judea will team up with those who do believe, but who have left the principle of grace through faith and become zealots for the law, and that double team will be too much for him, except he's rescued by the Romans. Well, we have much more to say. This is a context of Scripture you don't often hear. I know that. And uh, do stay with us. I'm John Malone, and this is BibleStudy.net. Now, the Apostle's talking to the Ephesian elders from Miletus, and we come to Acts chapter 20 for this background, and we look at verses 22 and 23. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, Say that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me or await me. So he knows that bonds are awaiting him. He knows that afflictions are awaiting him. And by the way, he knows who it is that brings these things to pass. The same ones who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. The surprising portion will be, by the way, to him, and that for the remainder of his Christian life, is how much persecution he also gets from those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, but who have turned from the truth uh, to the principle of works and law. And the religious people are always a source of persecution against the spiritual people. And it doesn't matter whether they've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. Once you become religious, once you become a zealot, once you have left the principle of grace through faith, then as the Lord Jesus said, that which is flesh is flesh, and that which is spirit is spirit. And when you walk according to the flesh, you do the deeds of the flesh, including the persecution of they who are after the spirit. It's a sad thing, and it's a difficult thing, and it's a great challenge for the apostle uh, to maintain the love of the brethren, despite this horrible experiences that he's going to have, but these are the experiences that are necessary according to God in the life of the apostle, not only to fulfill that I will show him what great things he must suffer for my namesake, but also to prepare him for the disclosure of the mystery of the church which is his body that he makes in the prison epistles, but especially in the epistle to the Ephesians. And I certify that to you in case you worry, and and maybe not without cause, uh, that we won't get there. Well, here now we say, he says, verse 24, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now listen, friends, this is the thing that made the apostle tick 
look here another way that he put it that I might finish my course with joy I find so many Christians uh, completely ignorant of the fact that God would have them to finish their course or to finish well and by the way I have seen many Christians finish their course I have seen very very few finish well uh, recently a tragic death of a of a good longtime Christian friend of mine the death of his daughter interrupted all of our lives a uh, sweet young Christian girl with an excellent testimony by all accounts among her peers just beginning the blossom of her life what a sad experience it has been for all of us but especially for my brother and sister uh, who lost their daughter and yet in all of this one thing the Lord made very clear to me is here's a young woman who finished well here's a young woman who finished well a, a young Christian girl not even 16 years old but finished her course well how sad shall we be when we know a young person or an old person finished their course well when it is such a rare rare occasion well here the apostle says I don't consider my life dear uh, and I don't uh, none of these things really move me from my course so because my whole intention is to finish my course with joy and the ministry which I received of the Lord to testify the gospel of the grace of God and so here he said I intend to remain faithful to the end and to finish my course and my course is to is to give the full counsel of God which God has given to me now he hasn't written about the mystery yet I'm sure the Apostle knows that he has things to disclose that he has not fully disclosed yet and these things he will do but not in a way that you or I would think he would do not in the comfort of the house of Nason where he will stay not in the not from the temple precincts in Jerusalem where you might think is headquarters but isn't but he'll do it from his own hired house while chained to a Roman guard and he'll do it as a prisoner of Rome God having the Romans protect the Apostle from those who hate him so that he can write the rest of the Word of God do you know my friends that it's very possible the Word of God could not have been written anywhere else that in prison under Roman guard is the only place the left on earth where the Apostle Paul could safely write the rest of the scriptures well maybe there was somewhere else but it wasn't anywhere else that he did it he wrote it from his house arrest and from his prison cell and now he says these ominous words uh, to the Ephesian elders which must have deeply burned into their minds as he says verse 25 and now behold I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more he said I know you will never see me again uh, among who you you fellows among whom I have preached concerning the kingdom of God you'll never see me again so take a good hard look this is your last one wherefore and of course now they realize why he summoned them now they realize that these are the perhaps the most important words of admonition that he's ever given them and he says take heed therefore unto yourselves now he says you're not going to see me anymore and you need to take heed unto yourselves he says uh, he's going to tell them that because he is not going to take heed unto them anymore he can't be looking after them anymore they're going to have to look after themselves but before he says that he says verse 26 wherefore I take you to record this day I am pure from the blood of all for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God and this gives us another indicator of how the Apostle Paul looked at his ministry you know the Lord interrupted him on the Damascus Road and he told Ananias he said I'm gonna show this one what great things he must suffer for my namesake this one who is a persecutor of me and so the Apostles ministry summed up by the words of the Lord in his calling that he would no longer persecute the Lord Jesus Christ but that the Lord Jesus Christ would instead show him the, his own sufferings the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ and so the Apostle reversing the blood guiltiness of the shed blood of Stephen and others that he participated in said I am I'm taking you to record I am 
now pure from the blood of everyone, because I did not fail to give you the whole counsel of God. He said, I've expurgated myself. I've acquitted myself before you. Not by saying he was sorry, uh, not by uh, doing penance, uh, not by any uh, recompense to them as men would see it, but he said, the way that I have cleared myself in this matter is that I have not failed to give you the entire counsel of God. I held nothing back, and I've given you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, verse 28, take heed, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. And here's where we say that, here's where we see that the elders or the presbyteros of Ephesus are also made episkopos or overseers of the flock of God. This is now the work of the Spirit of God, no longer raising up uh, sign gifts. Uh, he doesn't notice there's no discussion of the sign gifts that are uh, discussed in the epistle to the Corinthians, which the ink is probably still hot on those pages, but the Apostle Paul now calling the elders uh, doesn't call them to outward spiritual gifts, but here the same Holy Spirit that brought those gifts to, to operate in the Corinthian church has made these men uh, overseers. He took the older men who were qualified in the book of Acts and made them in, in Ephesus there and made them overseers or episcopos. Unhappily, in our King James Bible and many of our Bibles, uh, due to the clericism of the background of those who translate, uh, oftentimes we'll see this word translated bishop. Well, we don't even know what that means. Uh, bishop always having a clerical sense to it. This having no no clerical sense. This has to do with what work you're supposed to do. These are overseers. They are those who see over, who see above. They can see further. And their job inside the flock is to oversee, you see, uh, and, and uh, take heed to the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. And what is an overseer supposed to do? Well, besides see over, it says to feed the church of God, to feed or to shepherd. Uh, this work is to shepherd or to feed. It is the word poimano. It is a poimeno. It means to feed. Another time it's translated rule, but it doesn't mean to rule. It means to shepherd. This is the work that shepherds do. Shepherds are with the flock. They oversee the flock. They fight the enemies of the flock. But the main thing a shepherd is supposed to do is feed the flock. And of course, this corresponds to what the Lord told Peter, if you love me, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Here now, the apostle saying, the Holy Ghost has made you to see over the flock, feed the flock of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Now this could very easily be uh, the, the church of the Lord, uh, but he has purchased with his own blood. And, and by the way, no controversy here. The blood of Jesus Christ is the blood of God. And notice that it says here, he acquired his church with his own blood. He purchased or acquired his church with his own blood, made you to be, you older men, uh, uh, he has, uh, the Holy Spirit has made you to be the overseers of these, and that means to feed them, to feed them, not to push them around. The man who rules well in his home is qualified to guide well in the church, and the way to guide well in the church is according to the scripture by the feeding of the flock. Man, now why does he tell them that? He says, take heed to yourselves. Why does he say that? Because of these very serious words in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. He says you need to be overseers because from the outside where the sheep aren't looking will come in grievous wolves to destroy the flock. And they won't spare the flock, but they'll, they'll feed themselves on the flock. And not only that, but also, verse 30, of your own selves. That is from those elders right there in Ephesus. Out of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things 
speaking things that are contrary to the Word of God. That's what perverse things are, twisted things, not holding faith in a good conscience, as he'll tell Timothy later, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch. Now, let me say there are two kinds of trouble. There's the kind from the outside where the unbelievers come in. A wolf is not a sheep, but wolves come in disguised as sheep. They have to look out for those who come in who are not sheep. There's another kind of trouble. It's a more insidious kind of trouble. The Apostle's been writing about those kind of troublemakers in 2 Corinthians and in the Epistle to the Galatians, and to some extent also in Romans, where he said, Mark them that cause divisions among you. He's got a very good inclination that there are rising up inside the churches those of perverse teaching who are trying to feed themselves off the sheep, who not who, who instead of feeding the sheep, are trying to feed themselves from the sheep. And by the way, friends, that's what we have today in the local churches. We have those coming in from the outside, not sparing the sheep. We have those on the inside rising up inside the churches and feeding off the sheep. And these are the ones, by the way, that take over pulpits. These are the ones that take over leadership inside the churches and destroy them from within. Uh, it, this is not a rare occurrence. It wasn't a rare occurrence at the time of the writing of the New Testament. It didn't stop there. It started there. And today, it is a most usual occurrence. And by the way, these are also they who unify and who seek union with the world from inside the churches. They destroy the scripture, they build unholy alliances among themselves, and they destroy the church of God, and they chase out the servants of God. And uh, the servants of God have no opportunity with such wicked ones. And they rose up from among the elders in Ephesus, and they rise up in the churches today. And who knows, they could be have risen up inside your local church as well. Now, here he tells uh, these older men, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And he calls it here the word of his grace because he knows that the way of grace will be spoken poorly against and that these will rise up teaching in place of the way of grace through faith some other gospel which is not another and he would spare them. Now, how are these elders in the Ephesian church, how are they supposed to war this warfare that he says is coming? They're to war the warfare according to the word of God. They're to war that warfare according to the way the apostle did. He he would take these on who would destroy the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He took these on who would feed themselves off the flock of God rather than to feed the flock of God. Brother, have courage. Brother, be like the Apostle Paul. Be the one who wants to finish your course with joy. Don't fear these men, but stand for the Word of God. Stand there in your local church and look after the sheep of the Lord which he purchased with his own blood. It is still the case that God Almighty wants a church, which is his body, to be the light of the world in the, in the world that is overtaken by darkness. He still is the one who speaks, and his light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overpower it. So he says, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. And now he gives his final uh, acquitting of himself. He said, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. He said, I wasn't after other men's things. I didn't want their stuff. He said, I did not feed myself off the flock. Of course, these are pregnant words because when he talks about those who rise up in their own midst, this is what they'll be after. I can assure you, those who rise up in churches to destroy churches, they're after money, sex, and power, and uh, not anything else. So here he says, I have coveted no man's silver, gold, or apparel. Yea, you yourselves know that these hands, and you can see him lifting those gnarled hands of his, reaching out to them. He said, these hands, you know how these hands uh, uh, ministered unto my own necessities, and to them that were with me. 
He said, you know my manner of life. You know I was a working man. You know I paid all my bills. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you should support the weak. He said, you fellas should work. And let me tell you something. You want to find an elder of God? He's a man who works. He's a man who works, especially in, in word and doctrine, but he works for his own keep. And he's not after the silver, gold, or apparel of another, another man. You got some guy in a pulpit that's after money all the time, kick him out. Just kick him out uh, before he destroys your church. Now it says, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than receive. How many have learned this lesson? More blessed to give than receive. Where did the Lord say these words? I'm sure the Lord told this to the Apostle Paul there in the Arabian desert when he was with him. You won't find it anywhere else in Scripture. But it is more blessed to give than to receive, and that's the word that he leaves them with. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all, and they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they should see his face no more, and they accompanied, they accompanied him unto the ship. Very tender affections, very solid Christian fellowship here, and yet from these men will rise up some who will uh, speak perverse things and draw away disciples after them. Well, to these is the epistle of the Ephesians then written, to these men, and this is the end of the Apostle Paul is in any ministry in Asia. We've got more coming in BibleStudy.net. Stay with us. Uh, as we look at another scripture concerning uh, our overview of the epistle to the Ephesians. And I'm John Malone. Well, for our, for our next scripture, we'll turn to Revelation, the second chapter, and we'll see another epistle written. This one actually is written to the church in Ephesus. And here it says, uh, Unto the angel, or the messenger, of the church in Ephesus write, these things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how, thou, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars." Uh, and has borne and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. Now here is the true epistle to the Ephesians. When we come to the, the epistle known as the uh, epistle of the Ephesians, we'll find out that it's an encyclical kind of letter, and it was passed along, and there's really no reference to the church that is in Ephesus. But here in the book of Revelation, we do see the, uh, a letter to the church in Ephesus, and uh, it's written to the angel of the church of Ephesus, and uh, or the church literally not of Ephesus, but in Ephesus. And uh, there's a commendation here. And here's the commendation of the Lord. We've just seen the exhortation of the apostle. Now we see his exhortation, and he exhorted those uh, Ephesian elders to look out and to be overseers of the flock and to feed the flock. And, to, and he gave them his example of how he labored with his own hands and worked for a living and took care of his own necessities and those that were with him and uh, told them that he was not covetous and uh, warned them uh, accordingly. And hear the Lord's commendation to the Ephesian church, I know thy works and thy labor. Interesting, he knows their labor. So these apparently did labor. I know thy works, thy labor, and thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. So they dealt with those who were evil. This probably uh, those who were in their own midst. And then he said, And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and has found them liars. Well, I find this very interesting. There were those who rose up in Ephesus, apparently, and called themselves apostles. Now, they were tried by the uh, those in Ephesus who are here commended. They were tried. They were proven. Well, how do you try an apostle? How do you prove an apostle? Well, you can apply the signs and wonder test of the apostles. Mark chapter 16, These signs shall follow them that believe. 
and of course, uh, these signs do not follow anyone today. They didn't follow anyone after the apostle in the church in Ephesus, and so they tried those who claimed to be apostles and found out that they were not apostles, and uh, not only were they not apostles, but what were they? They were false. These were false apostles. This is what the Corinthians were warned against in, in Second Corinthians, such are pseudo-apostles or false apostles. These are of those of the general category, warned against in Galatians, pseudo-brothers. They were false or lying brothers. And so here they were those who claimed that they were apostles, and the Ephesians proved them out and found out they were not. And the Ephesians labored, and they're commended for their labor. And they have borne and had patience, and for my namesake hast labored and not fainted. So those are the commendations. Now there are other things that they weren't commended for, especially he says, nevertheless I have against you because you left your first love. And they had drifted. This now, of course, reminding us of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that has called you unto another gospel, which is not another, but I would spare you. Here the Lord now writing this epistle, warning them, uh, you've moved away from your first love, which of course is the Lord himself. You're moving away from your first love. Now he says, remember where you have, are fallen and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy lampstand out of his place, except thou repent. Now he has one more commendation for these in Ephesus, showing that they indeed did heed the warning of the Apostle Paul. He says this in verse 6, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now there are very many who are busy trying to tell us that we can't know who the Nicolaitans are very busy telling us this. In fact, most people that tell us that we can't know who the Nicolaitans are are fellows that are busy making money in their churches or off God's people. Now let me assure you this, a Nicolaitan uh, is, a, this is a combination word, Nikos and laity. The idea of laity, the concept of laity in Christian churches is not a Bible concept. The division between clergy and laity is a heathen division, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the Scripture. There is not to be any division in the body. We're divided by function, but there is no special class of believer that's to be called clergy. I despise being called a clergyman because I teach the Bible. I am no clergyman, and I am no layman. I am a brother, and you, sister, are also a brother. And you, brother, are a brother. And if you call yourself a clergyman, you know, you get those tax-exempt license plates, you like the chief places at the, at the feasts and all that kind of stuff. Hey, I have no problem with your tax exemption. But, you know, you like that special place. You like to be called reverend. You like to be called a clergyman. You like to wear funny clothes. Look out there. That, none of that has to do with Christianity. These hated the Nicolaitans. This here combination of the word the people and the word Nikos or conqueror, or the conqueror of the people, or the one who sets himself up above the people as a conqueror. God has nothing to do with this. Neither did the Ephesian elders because they heeded the great warning of the Apostle Paul. Listen, I could speak all day about Nicolaitans. In fact, I'd like to interview a few on BibleStudy.net. Wouldn't that be funny? Uh, we'd have a good time there. But instead, let's go back to Acts 21 and study the Scriptures. We hear enough from Nicolaitans on, uh, su on the Sunday mornings, many of us. So let's uh, come back here to Acts chapter 21 and see what happened to the apostle next after he left those weeping elders of Ephesus and that touching scene. And we come now to Acts 21, and they launch away from Miletus. It, seemed, it says it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course unto Coos, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto 
Patera. Now here we find smooth sailing. We find good sailing weather, apparently. And uh, then a couple of days, uh, they get over to Patera. And then the apostle, of course, eager to try to get to Jerusalem by the time of the Pentecost, uh, says it says it says in verse 2, Finding a ship sailing over into Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. So they grab their stuff and they switch ships here in Patera. And uh, now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden. And in one verse we see them moving quite along. And I like this language here. It says, when we had discovered Cyprus, of course Cyprus not discovered by them. This is not some kind of adventure here. Uh, they sighted or they saw Cyprus. We left it on our left hand. And uh, it's as if they're moving along so quickly that up comes Cyprus in vision and away it goes. They're moving right along. And they sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden. So this is now where the ship uh, lands. And uh, that's, the, that's the vessel that they found. And uh, there they are in Tyre in Syria. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Of course, the language here, that he should not go, uh, it is not that, that, that he was forbidden to go by the Spirit, but that uh, the, the Spirit points out to them that there's nothing but trouble for him in Jerusalem. Of course, he's already heard that everywhere he goes. This is just a stronger statement. And uh, then he said, when we had accomplished those days... And uh, that uh, he fulfilled their time or completed their time. Uh, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us on our way with wives and children until we were out of the city. And you can see there's another touching scene as the apostle is no longer going to see these believers, and they bring their whole families and they walk him out of the city. And he says, We kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken leave one of another, we took ship and then returned home again. Now, here, uh, uh, or it says really returned to their own things. So here he embarks uh, on the ship, the ship that uh, no doubt was now unloaded from its lading. Uh, he gets back on the ship and it says, And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And now you see that this is the apostle saying goodbye to beloved brethren. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And you remember Philip, he's the one who evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch, and then he was taken and he went into Caesarea, and apparently this is where he made his home. Uh, Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, he's not in Jerusalem anymore. Uh, he's in Caesarea where he stayed, of course, a uh, good thing. That way he can serve the Lord and stick to the gospel of the grace of God because in Jerusalem uh, there's not much liberty. And uh, it says the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And I suppose their prophecy at this time uh, was such that the apostle uh, had bonds awaiting him in in uh, in Jerusalem. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. This is the same prophet who prophesied the great Darth. And of course, the apostle in response to that raised the money. This is what he's carrying. So it's interesting that Agabus comes down to Caesarea to meet the apostle Paul. And uh, uh, while the apostle Paul is actually bringing uh, the bounty from Achaia and from Macedonia in response to the prophetic word of Agabus concerning the Darth which was upon the whole land. And when Agabus was come, we read in Acts 21.11, he took Paul's girdle bound in his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owns this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And indeed that's what happens. Uh, but it rather falls out to the good of the word of God as we have pointed out already today. And when they heard these uh, when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Of course these are their natural affections, but Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and break my heart, for I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He says, Look, I'm ready for this. 
And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Now, here you notice they're in unanimity. They're persuaded that it is the will of the Lord for the Apostle Paul. Hard to imagine it, but they are persuaded by the word of the Apostle, and so they're really in agreement, the will of the Lord be done. And it isn't that he will die in Jerusalem. The will of the Lord is that he is arrested in Jerusalem and then goes to Rome. Now, therefore went with us certain of the disciples of Caesarea, brought with them one nason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James and all the elders that were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealots of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake or apostatize from Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after their customs. Of course, this is slander. It's not what the apostle taught. The apostle taught the Gentiles, don't fall into the Jews' religion. What is it, therefore, the multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that you are come. And what a pathetic situation this is, where James and the elders say, look, this is out of control up here. We've got a bunch of law zealots. And so do therefore this that we say to thee. Now this is not James saying this. This is those who are come together. It is a first person plural. Do therefore this which we say to thee. Now these who are compromising, these who believe that if you just say something the right way, if you just act the right way, the offense of the gospel will cease uh, to those who are on legal principle. Well, we'll find out differently. We say to thee, we have four men which have a vow in them, take and purify themselves with them and pay for them pay for them be at their charges with them that they may shave their heads and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing but thou thyself walkest orderly and keepest the law as touching the gentiles which we believe we which believe we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication now let me just say what these people say here to do is bad advice but it doesn't necessarily wrong to follow bad advice sometimes you follow people's advice to prove to them that they're wrong and that's what the apostle here does he took the man and the next day purifying himself with them entered into the temple to signify accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them and he even paid all the fees for these guys which was no small amount now here these Jews are saying, we've already declared that the Gentiles are separate but equal. But God has something more to say than that. God does not say Gentiles and Jews are separate but equal. He says they're one new man in Christ. And he says it in the epistle of the Ephesians. We're going to go there and look at it. And we're going to come back and take this little deal apart here in Acts 21. Because this is not the way for God's people to behave. It wasn't then and it isn't now. You're listening to John Malone and BibleStudy.net. May God bless us together as we study the book of Ephesians.